welcome to the 50th recording of, the, of the intro and the outro to this, this episode, episode of the Labcast, the Atkins Labcast. Yes, it is the Atkins So Labcast. how many, we recorded it, last time we recorded it twice. Twice. So it's only the third time. I said 50, I was it being hyperbolic. It feels like 50 because it feels like 500 years since we were in here recording it because between our last recording and this recording, America went from being run by a orange clown sociopathic narcissistic um orange clown yeah Chido, we shouldn't be hang Chido on hang on hang on baby. if people want to be that color that's fine we shouldn't judge no, the color no i don't judge fake tan in fact i judge fake tan a lot less than lying under a fucking tanning bed and actually burning your skin and getting but skin it gets cancer. rid of the covid <laughs> no, no, you got to get the light the inside, inside the veins. the veins somehow. Yeah, so it's been like we recorded. Feels like it's been we, we recorded, and we're going to release, and then yeah. we've had a really busy week because we've also been releasing all these fab My new products. Ephemera range, which Kate's no one knows how to say. It's ephemera, ephemera, ephemera. Yeah. So we recorded about ephemera on the on the Friday. We did, and then we. Why did we re- record it again? I can't remember. I don't know. But we had to re-record Oh, because one of the kids interrupted. And they oh, right. got all discombobulated. That's what it was. Well, anyway, we re-recorded it. And then we just didn't release it. And, of course, it, we had a lot of pre-election go and vote stuff out. Yeah. And now it's Sunday night yeah. after... Australian um, time. Australian we time. we are Australians. And Australia. if anybody goes, oh, my God, why do you care about the American... Because the environment. I care about the American election... Because what's going to happen is that our lazy, self-interested, asshole prime minister is finally going to be pushed by Biden to do something on the environment. Well, with some leadership in the world around that from a first world country would be super helpful. It really would. Because yep. it's sure isn't it shit not coming from bloody ScoMo. But also the idea of having something else to watch other than the Trump show or something else tugging at our attention. We were just saying, I, w- I was listening to a podcast and someone was saying that this last four years they haven't been able to read a novel in bed. You know, like a Yeah, that was the Vanity fiction. Fair podcast. Yeah, and I actually, I feel a bit the same way. And it's, I think it's part of the problem is reading on the iPad and you get notifications, which is really done. You've got to turn your notifications off. Right. But, you know, that it is a thing you've got to take. I mean, it's so distracting. And, well, well it is for, for me... And I know a lot of people are saying, oh, I don't, just don't pay attention. But the fact is a large part of the world has attention has been drawn into this and it's kind of ruined a lot of ability to focus on other things, which is absolutely, yeah. it sounds absolutely pathetic. But I mean, I started being interested about Trump because I have a father who has narcissistic personality disorder and I saw a lot of similar traits and... Then as the time went by, I just became obsessed with the whole sort of cultural phenomena of him and then the political system of the US and then um, realising that he was, you know, a sociopath more so than than narcissistic. And so that makes it a different thing, I guess. And, yeah, I mean, I think, I think so much has happened in my life over the last four years, but... I think this has been a consistent sort of thrum of drama and and intrigue and outrage. And it'll be really interesting to see what I do now. Like, there's so many podcasts. I'm obsessed with podcasts, right? And I have 
a squillion bloody podcasts that I listen to every day and probably 60, 70% of them are Trump-related, American politics-related. And I don't really want to listen to, oh, well, Joe Biden's put in a (laughs) comprehensive healthcare. Great. Yeah, good on you, Joe. Whatever. I don't care. Like once they got their shit sorted, I'm fine. They'll work it out, you know. So then I'm kind of interested what all these podcasts are going to do. I know it's been so focused, isn't it? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually looking forward to getting stuff done. Uh, that and mentally, you know, being able to do other things. And it's it again. I want to iterate. Yes, there's a lot of people out there who just say, "Oh, I just turn off. I don't listen to it." I can't. You can't. It's just been a part of our. Yeah, this life. conversation is for people who are interested in this. If you're like Trump, who well, then don't listen to this yeah, bit. Exactly. Jump ahead. Exactly. So, so the interesting story about uh, Joe Biden. Uh, is that, you know, he's a, a middle ground person who's actually really good at compromise and working with other people. Yeah. And he's also a person who's had a lot of evolutions, evolutions, revolutions, changes in his life. He's He's gone through a lot of cycles in his life. And um, and to get now, to get to into a country, into a position where a country really needs someone who's going to try and unite, you know, a pretty rough right and a, a pretty angry left. Mm. Um, he's got a actually a really good chance of of doing that. Out of everyone who could sit down and negotiate with someone like Mitch McConnell, yeah. I know. Don't just like it's a reality. They have to. He's probably one of the. They few won't people, have to if they take. Of course, the Senate. But the rea- regardless, you've got to deal with these characters, and they've been re-elected. These characters. So if there's anyone, they, they, you know, the pundits are saying there's anyone who can do it. Yeah, I know. I so, know. so I mean, the thing that <coughs> the thing that's difficult for me is because I'm a person who likes big change in everything, as you are sadly aware, <laughs> because I like just burning shit down all over the place and changing stuff around, which drives which you crazy. Is what I don't like. I know, I know, darling. But and so that's the frustration that I and anyone else who's like me will have is that America moves extremely slowly. It does. And um, and this is just proof that it's Yeah, I mean this the Trump phenomena started with Reagan. Yeah. Right? And so they've taken that long to get to full full kind of fruition of the Reagan project of having this sort of yeah. mad entertainer idiot in, in front well, of everyone. Unfortunately they picked a drongo to do it because like he's Well, I mean he's not the uh, the next iteration would be a, a an actually effective and intelligent Trump, which but they've would actually, be terrifying. There is the argument that uh, that Tucker you need Carson. someone that loud. At, but tra- Tucker hasn't got the personality of Trump. I don't know. You the know? old ladies fucking love him. They think he's sexy. Ugh. Anyhow, let's wh- – the reason why I mentioned the Joe Biden thing is because – and this is not an age thing in any way, but our guest this week, Tony Kearney, has had a lot of iterations in his life and he's, and he's done a lot of – Work nice in the segue, community. Honey. Yeah, it's a good segue. Yeah. He's done a lot of work in the community and a lot of work connecting people of all different types and socioeconomic groups and skill levels with art together. And he's an activist on a on a on a micro level. Like he sort of does local stuff and with people who who he's interested in a narrow sort of frame. Yeah. And I, I first really No less valuable. No, no, not at all. Um, but I, I, I my, my attention was first um, sort of drawn to him when I'd heard the story of the bridge 
that was the brand new bridge that was being built in Port Adelaide. But it would stop tall ships coming in boats with a mast above a certain height. Yes, you and, boaty um, boys. That's right. And so every other bridge in these sorts of places are opening, so you can bring the open it and bring the boat through. It's not like it's going to open every day. I mean, tall ships come and go. Uh, not every day. Yeah, but, but isn't the tall ships are the ones you want to see? Aren't well, they're the they're the spectacle. And Tony, when he'd heard that this bridge was being built, yay, great new bridge, helpful. Yep, keep Port Adelaide, you know, boost it. But then they said they weren't going to open it, and so. Pretty much it was him that, that led the charge and the fight politically to ensure that bridge was opened. And, uh, you know, I thought that was a really cool thing. And around a lot of the things he's done has always been this idea of bringing other people with him. And I think he's a great guest for that reason. And mm. uh, he's had a lot of evolutions in his life from an industrial designer, yeah, political ad, uh, a- activist and... Um, uh, to, to a photographer, a collector... Oh my god! Oh yes, the stuff we he have. Has. To, I have to take you to see his apartment. No, I don't want to see it. It's just like being led into Aladdin's cave and having your hand smacked. Can I tell you, it's better than Aladdin's cave. Yeah, but in the story of Aladdin's cave, you go in there and you get take shit home. <laughs> <laughs> so if I get, well, to, go, if I get to Tony's things. house and he's like, "Take whatever you want," I'll be like, "I'm bringing a trailer." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's fabulous. Um, the iteration as photographer is really interesting because. Uh, again, when I met him, he had a business card, which he still carries around, hands out, which says amateur photographer on it. Mm. And um, and he explains a little bit about that business card, which I think is, you know, because the, the word amateur um, is, is Latin and he explains that. And where he's gotten himself to as a photographer is a really enviable position. And uh, since we recorded, actually, because he had this exhibition at Shimmer and had f- has photographed some pretty famous people, but it was associated with music festivals and fringe festivals. Mm. You know, pretty lucky opportunities to grab people. He's built a technique up for photographing people very quickly, which he explains. It's very cool. But this has led to a commission, and it since the recording, he got asked to photograph a couple of people. He got asked to photograph Jack Thompson and David Gulpil whilst they're in Adelaide for a film yeah. festival i think it was very cool images which is very cool and yeah and he sh- he shot them so this that doesn't appear in this film in this film in this um in this podcast and the images i don't know if they've actually been released yet but they are they're great mm. they're just they're wonderful portraits so anyway let's let the listeners go and have a listen to tony tony k and um we'll speak to you all afterwards enjoy yep. <laughs> i don't even know how to start these things I'm here in my office with Tony Kenny, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about his work that's hanging in the Shimmer program and a bit about his life, because he's actually a fake Australian. He's a New Zealander. <laughs> <laughs> or are we fake New Zealanders? Uh, I think you all are, yeah. yeah. You'd, you'd prefer to be there, I know, so, so uh, I, I. I think we would. I think we would for a several different reasons. We do love our Australia, but we're not that precious that we don't want to overtake you guys as well. <laughs> um, Tony and I have... Uh, known each other for a while. Uh, I came across Tony from his photography uh, and his community work and the sort of art circles that we we both have have moved in. And um, the thing that I enjoyed most about this sort of connection with Tony was the the sort of openness with which he he runs these art collectives and the way he invites people in uh, from all walks of the art industry to put a show on together. Where did the idea of these 
collectives come from? What, how does that fit with you? You're a community-minded person, yeah. right? Yeah, well, it started with as a part of a community protest, in fact. Um, there was an, um, a festival called the Port Festival back in 2009, and they were asking for people to put on exhibitions, and I decided to put an exhibition on called Rust, and the byline for it was the corrosion of culture and the culture of corrosion because they were the development down in the port was basically eliminating anything that had any texture in it, including the rusty old boat yards. And so within the exhibition there were I just gave the artists the word rust and they played with it. But they but many of the local artists uh, treated it as a way of um, putting protest imagery or or works into the exhibition. Okay, so with the this kind of political activism that that sort of formed this, how effective has that activism been? Because why why you moved to, from uh, New Zealand and you moved to Australia? Yep, right. And did you move to South Australia, Port Adelaide? That's where you started here. No, I started. Um, where did we start? I think we well we've been all over the place because we rented houses. So we had you know house in Medindi for a while. We had. Seacliff um, lived on the beachfront at Henley for you know, five or six years, um, and then we was in Goodwood for a while, and then we bought the shell of an empty apartment in Port Adelaide in nineteen eighty. So, oh, sorry, uh, two thousand. So, so what was it about Port Adelaide that you wanted to be there? Because I got a feeling that it's a, a bit a real yeah. home for you. It is. Um, it started out as me and my. Business partners, I'm an industrial designer. Um, we had a uh, studio down in Hendon in the old um, ammunitions factory. And on Friday lunches, we used to go for wanders around the port after having a few beers and getting our carriage up and wander into wool stores or paint paint buildings or any of the old buildings as if we you know, we're supposed to be there and we'd wander through and have a look and these are the old derelict buildings and try and find a nice place for a workshop. And it turned out that, oh, I suppose, five or six years after starting doing that, we walked, I walked back into an old paint factory and signed a contract to buy a shell apartment within that paint factory. And yeah. That was one of the ones we'd looked at earlier on. So the whole area is really a gutted industrial you know, area stores for shipping and freight and that. And it's been, I mean, Port Adelaide's one of these regions. It's not like Fremantle, which has had all the money and everything happened to it. I think they've tried at times to make this this big, wonderful port thing out of it. And it just keeps this sort of a slow grind at this change. And now they, they've been made many mistakes in what they've done and trashing local heritage. And you find yourself really attracted to these, these beautiful old buildings as they are. Yeah, well... When we first moved to the port, we were you know, attracted by its character and the people and the you know, friendliness of the locals and um, just the raw potential of this place. And one of the first things I did was join the local sports club and the local sports club happened to be the local sailing club. And so about a, you know, six months into that, a boat came up and we, Sandra and I bought it and still have it. I have still have it. Um, and so I got to really get into playing with wooden boats and all the, all the maintenance that goes with those. And then about three or four years later, I managed to secure um, 
rental on one of the old boat yards and we, we were just building boats on the riverfront alongside the professional boat builders. We were building and repairing wooden boats. This um, isn't about wooden boats, you know, this podcast. Because it could easily go down that path, as, as, as you know. No, um, but, but what led me to get yep. back into photography was when the demolition started or the oh, demolition threats started on the boat yards. Yep. And from the... From the um, so when you said you saw potential in Port Adelaide, it wasn't the potential that an investor in apartments would see. It's not. It wasn't a. It was just a charactered yep, area yep. that was untouched, that was just about to be destroyed. That was well at the, at the time it was evolving rather than it was slowly evolving rather than prescriptively evolving. Gotcha. Um, and so when word got out that my favourite buildings on the whole river were about to be demolished to make way for a, um, a new development, I dragged my old film camera out, which I'd only been using for you know, parties and travel and a few other things you know, over the years, um, and started recording uh, the interiors and the people within the boatyards. And some of the boatyards were five generations old and they were about to be demolished and never seen again. So it's basically cultural vandalism. So um, how long ago was that? Like we're now in 2020? So 2009 were the first buildings started going yeah. down, or 2008, yeah. and they went down over about a two-year period. And during that period, I, along with a lot of other people within the port community, tried to save them from being totally demolished. We wanted them knitted into the fabric of whatever development was going to happen, and it would have been fabulous. Instead, what's happened is it's now 2020, and those same sites where the boatyards were are still vacant blocks. That's that's so disappointing. Yeah, it's such such an opportunity missed. Yeah, and you know gone for good. Yeah, and I think I think most, well, not most, but many sensible people see that the integration of the history with the architecture. And yes, it, it's more expensive, but it makes a much more interesting place. It's a place to end. live. That's right. As opposed to a place to you know. Look out on like a um, from a thirteen-story building. You to all the empty apartments next yep. door. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah, that's disappointing. So that that community involvement, where you had other locals that obviously rallied around the idea, uh, that first exhibition, Rust, uh, were those other artists that, that was an art group and they were using their art in some ways for political ends. Some of them were, yes. Yeah. Um, so some of them. So so. Basically, it started out as rust, and it, it was an exhibition of disparate um, levels of um, career artists, disparate um, disciplines. Disciplines, definitely disciplines, yep. because you've got um, you know, anything from photography through to ceramics and glass and metalwork and paintings and installation work, and um, it you know, we'd <laughs> for the first two or three years. Um, We'd get the work on a Thursday and open on the Friday, so we didn't <laughs> we didn't really sort of so just put it, put it together. And so you're trusting the curation on the artists that you're asking. You're really yeah. curating the people yeah. and not what they're putting in the show. Yeah. So basically, I'm asking the people and I'm trusting the people will bring me something that is from from my experience of what I've seen of their work. Yeah, um, will will work um, with whatever's there. Yeah, and in the Ten years I've been putting on these exhibitions. Um, I don't think I've refused one work, and that's up to th it's up, what was the last exhibition? About forty people. Yeah. So you know, ranging from people who had never shown anything before, 
to people who'd shown in the V&A or the Louvre. So, you know, there's, there's a very sort of a very mixed bag of people and they all had to sit the gallery and they all had to bring a plate for the opening night and they all had to sweep out the place before we opened up. So it's a real community-based yeah. thing, not, not curated, well, curated in as much as I knew the people and I invited them to be part of it. Yeah. So there's there's two things happening here. There's the the interest in photography, which which is actually quite late. Uh, you know, a lot of people were taking. I mean, I'm sure you're taking photos as a young person, but seriously, as a as an artist working mm. uh, in that, uh, you know, that's a fairly late thing to come to as being an industrial designer and everything else you've done. But secondly, the idea that the as a curator or a facilitator i don't know would you think a curator is someone who's more likely to point at someone's work and say yeah that work shouldn't be there i want you in it but i don't want that work mm. um what's what um well i just give people free reign because that means they've they've got ownership of their piece within the exhibition and i'm talking ownership in the form of you know it's not something that sort of come out of came out of a collection somewhere or they've um they've basically had to go and think about the word. And the words we've used over the years, and they're all port-centric um, because it's just followed on exhibitions. So it's been rust, salt, tar, smoke, knot, grit, grain, bridge, vessel, I think. And these are single words. Port-centric. Port-centric, single words. Yep. And, and, and most of the words can be interpreted in many ways. Yeah, that's so, the secret to it, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, having a word that's... Um, maritime or port or whatever that can't be looked at in in a number of ways um, limits the limits the appeal of the exhibitions. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, did uh, what in your upbringing brought the idea of community uh, work? I mean, everyone feels that community is a nice thing, and we all say, yeah, it's great. But to yeah. actually get up and rally people and take the trouble to put stuff together is a whole other thing. So, what it is about your you that Drew, drew I don't that. Know. My dad, my dad was always um, very community minded, and he would bring home people to stay with us who, um, you know, just off the street, you know, people who didn't have a place to stay. Um, for Christmas, uh, he, his grandmother, his mother, sorry, my grandmother, used to send the seven kids out into the streets on a Christmas morning and they weren't allowed to come home for Christmas lunch unless they brought someone with them. Wow. So that was... kind of Dickensian in some ways, isn't it, really? The idea of... They they would have a a table for 14 set up. Yeah, yeah. uh, Ready for these people to come home and they could be anyone. Wow. And so Sandra and I used to do it. We used to put a notice up in the the youth hostels and, and get, you know, two Japanese girls and an Israeli on crutches. Yeah. Um, So, or whatever. So, and that... Have a fantastic day. So that was sort of not. It's not quite community. It's it's just been social. And yeah. Been being you know, engaging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, when you travel overseas, you, f- you find these people again, and they take you in and they look after you. So yeah, it makes the world a smaller place, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, so let's get on to the photography side of it. Uh, when we first met, you had a business card that said "amateur photographer" on it. Still do. Uh, and, and you still do. <laughs> um, and. You know, I don't. You know, I know there's a f- there's a bit of fun in that, but you've never 
operated as a professional photographer. Correct. Uh, uh, except for commission, small commissions for, for arts events and so forth. Yeah, and that's kind of where you've, where you've fallen into. So yeah. tell us about the work that you're most happy doing now and how you do it. Um, so I'm really doing portraiture work. Um, it's film-based, so it could be using uh, 1960s Hasselblad and its, and its lens, its standard lens, or it could be using um, a big old... 1890s wooden camera with an 1860s lens on the front um, and do that from a place that's less portable. So most of the most of the photographs for the exhibition, bar one, were done with uh, 1960s Hasselblad 500C um, and, and just... A slightly wide lens? No. No? It's What's an 80mm. 80mm, is that right? Yeah, it's got a secret about it, but... It, an 80 mil. So what's the secret? It's a secret. Oh. <laughs> hey, great. Let's just make for good radio. <laughs> um, yeah, I got a nod and a wink. Um, because the stuff always does look slightly wide. It does it's, look slightly no, wide. No, it's because I'm slightly close. Yeah. Um, and I'm closer than you'd normally get. Okay, so yeah. it, did you find that, so you're photographing people quite close, like within a metre or two? Yeah. How do they? How do you? How do they feel about that? Because it's a lens. I mean, how? Well, they're looking at the lens on the top of my head because I'm looking down into the. Oh yes, waist the, level. The, well, no, well, I'm looking through the little viewfinder. Yes. So, um, but I'm not looking at them while I'm taking the photograph. I'm asking them to look at the lens, and more than likely, they're looking at their reflection at that distance. Gotcha. And so you know, and most of the time, um, well, it's all natural light. It's. Um, most of the t- most of the time, the it's found backgrounds. It be down to, I think the slowest image I've taken handheld is fifteenth of a second, but most of them are around thirtieth, possibly sixtieth yes. handheld. Um, and I generally only take two to three images of each person, and that's it. And that's so that and this, then this I select one, yeah. and I could use all three. So this came back, came up at the artist talk, uh, the panel discussion at the festival, and we, I was, we were, everyone's bumbling on saying, "Oh, they really know their subject. Uh, this is the reason why I was doing this work because this is my era. I understand it." And then you came along and said, "I only spend a couple of minutes with each person. I only get three pictures with them." So with a roll of of one twenty film, I, g- I can go through four people. You go four people. <laughs> no, I don't do that, especially with large groups who may be, you know. Cirque France or whatever, or, or a group of the, the, the Stop Shopping Choir with uh, the Reverend Billy, you know, he'd, he'd have 30 people on stage. And I would, before or after um, a performance, come along with my camera and just ask him to sit in front of me. First image, look straight at the lens. Second image, look slightly sideways. And the third image, I'd get a bit closer. And that's about it. It's right. as simple as a formula as I use. Right. And, and, then, well, and then I'd get the image. So is that is that by design or is it by a, a, a discomfort you have in taking pictures of people? No, no discomfort. It's more it's more knowing that these people have are precious about the time they've got to do to do a sitting and you know, if I I've generally found that within three photographs I've got something that works. Right. And I don't need to do why spend more time yeah. Um, than you need to, and more time on developing film than you need to, and and you know, you've seen the images that I've 
done, they're, yeah, they're, they work. Yeah, they work. So and there's no, a, there's it might a just be an eye thing because all of all the, all the prints are printed out right out to the edge of the, the frame of the frame of the negative. So yes. it includes part of the negative. Yeah. In the in the image. So you're showing. Full so I'm showing prompt, exactly yeah. what I see yeah. or what I think I see. It's quite unusual these days to have that. I mean, people would quote that is how we had to work because we weren't given the budget because the yep. boss with the handing the film out at the sports event or whatever, you know, the, yeah. the newspaper photographer says, I only gave 15 shots or six shots yeah. to make the picture. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd be standing on stage at Laneway or not on stage, back side stage, um, taking some digital This is a music festival. Yeah, music festival in, in Port Adelaide. Um, taking photographs of contemporary musicians um, on stage um, and, for example, I got chatting with Billie Eilish's mum, who was her uh, manager, and just said, "Would it be okay if I took some photographs of Billie after the after the exhibition after the um, performance?" And she said, "Sure, but we've only got a few minutes. The, the, the van's waiting to take us to the airport so we can get to Perth for the next exp- next um, not exp- concert yeah. concert." Yeah. Um, so I said, "Fine," and so I basically went about finding a place which had. Good natural light, and uh, and luckily there's a huge sheet of black behind the stage, which I was behind that, and like as in we we're backstage facing the audience, but there was a big sheet of cloth there sitting there. It was black, and I took four photographs of Billie Eilish, and and um, that when she was 16, and one of those is in the exhibition. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I mean, it's it does take a big thing, and I, I personally struggle with it a bit, stopping people and saying. I'm going oh, to do your picture. So what's the, the confidence what's in that? Took a long time. Oh, okay. To do. Um, well, you only started doing this uh, four years ago. <laughs> yeah. So where did the confidence come from? Um, ask. Well, 2010, I went back to school so that I get access to a dark room, and that was the Martin Senior College. Yes. In um, Martin, and that allowed. Um, mature age students and students who were in year 12 um, to study photography if they didn't have facilities at their own school. And so the first year of that I just used to play around, the year 11 I did, um, I used to play around and concentrate on alternative processes and all sorts of things and never did the schoolwork. And at the end of the year um, I failed year 11. I got a notice telling me I'd failed. And then so year 12 came <laughs> along. Hang on, you're already a qualified. How old were you when you started this? Uh, in my 40s. Yeah, yeah right. So you 50s, were still operating an industrial design business with a yeah, business partner. So, so all I was doing is just going there once a week for four hours and using a darkroom. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Is industrial design that boring? No, I just wanted to do, I just wanted to do something else. Um, and photography like was building or whatever. You, yeah, and photography yeah, was, yeah. was it. And, you know, basically the, that early documentation of the port um, sort of started that process off right, you know, right. and, and getting back into it. And in the fact that, you know, black and white processing, black and white film I always liked and places for it to be processed in Adelaide at that stage were fairly small. As well, they in, still as are. A, yeah, I mean, talking about commercial places. That yeah, yeah, but they still are. And the place you can rent a dark room, yeah. dark room these days is very yeah. rare. Yeah. So... I just figured that you know for two hundred and thirty dollars a year for one or for four hours a week, I thought it was kind of a good deal. It's a great deal, and um, so I, I just used 
the place. So the next year, year 12, I felt embarrassed by the fact that I hadn't really contributed to the to the school curriculum and I did year 12 just as a bit of a, a, a process. And that included, at the end of the year, putting together three folios of work which were two specific proce- uh, programs. You know, you basically... This is your this is your task this week. This is your task the next week, and part of that task in was to um, do some portrait photography in a photographic studio. And I've never used lights before, and so what I'd do is turn them all the way down to their lowest amount of light, and bring in the Hasselblad and just do longer exposures of right. Of yeah. So you were friends. treating the modelling light as as a still light. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so not using the strobes. No, no just just. Nothing, yep. nothing more than just a, a source of light from yep. one side, and maybe a bit of reflection, and that's it. Yeah. And so you've got one of the, my prints on the wall behind you. Yeah. Um, it's I basically brought in bits and pieces from boxes and shelves that of of my collection at home, which was partially driven was partially driven from my industrial design background, but um, you know, trying to find artifacts and things that really encouraged me to do better industrial design. Um, and I just hand them to the my subjects, which happened to be um, these the girls who were in the class that I was in and their friends, and just ask them to offer them to the camera and I'd take a photograph. Okay, that so that's where that sort of series came. Yeah, and that yeah. was called Offerings. Right. And so there were, there were wooden boats, as the one Paul's got here. Yeah. There were planes, there were... Um, trains, there were sort of all sorts of toy, old toy things that were offered and and so a series, and that series called Offerings um, was in about 2009 or 2000, no, it would have been 2011 after, yeah. after all of that, yeah. Yeah, and so that then gave you that sort of confidence when directing people and and managing them in that in that sort of tight environment of a and of a and small just studio. and trying to make them as comfortable as possible as quickly as possible. Yeah, um, and not and not having and in that during that time, I wasn't um, I, I wasn't using natural. I was, so I was trying to use as much as close to natural light as possible. And, and make it to make it work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But your preferences for natural light. Yeah. Uh, and so then, when you were saying that you're shooting at the Laneway Festival and you're using digital cameras, so you do shoot a bit of digital as well. Yeah, I got no problem with shooting digital. I was just I was documenting um, Laneway initially for uh, Vital Statistics, who are who are an art and um, uh, the theatre theatre company, company down in the port. Yeah. And my friend Emma runs it, and um, she asked if I could come down and document what was happening within vital statistics. Sorry, within the vital statistic building, while Laneway was on. Yep. So that was Laneway was using vital statistics building, and that gave me the opportunity and pass to go backstage if I wanted to. And over the, I don't know how many years I've done it, five or six years I've done Laneway. I've been one of the few photographers who, for some reason, have been given backstage access. Yep. And in the last couple of years, um, I've been doing it just off my own bat and and for for Laneway. So I was I'd take the digital imagery which Laneway could use wherever they wanted to, and I'd take the film imagery which I could use whenever whenever I wanted to. Yeah. So I got access to all sorts of people over the years. And that built out that collection of yeah. of 
quick portraits. Yeah. Because that's what you had. To, that's how you had to work. Yeah. Um, now you've you've moved beyond laneway with that sort of work with musicians. You've been working for other festivals. Yeah. Uh, so I've worked for RCC Fringe. So that's Royal Croquet Club. Royal Croquet Club Fringe, which is a sort of a curated, um, uh, curated festival within the Fringe Festival. Yeah. Um, and so I got to work with Pussy Riot, and I got to work with. Um, all sorts of really interesting and diverse people from around the world. I just missed out on taking Laurie Anderson's photograph this year because she had to fly back, ironically, to New York to get away from the coronavirus here. Oh, my. <laughs> so she'd left on... I, I sorted sort sort it. it out that I'd p- photograph her on Saturday morning and she was on that plane to New York on Saturday morning because she was yeah. wanted to get back home to her yeah. where she felt comfortable. Yeah, we can understand that. Yeah, um, it was bizarre because that that fringe was the last thing that happened here in in, a, in our Australia, yeah. in South Australia, the last event, and it felt those last few days of of that week yeah. that all the restrictions were ramping up, that it was all over, and well, you know, all, our exhibition closed on the day before the restrictions came in. That's right. the last one. The last which was one called Vessel, which is yeah, yeah. So um, it was really an unusual time for it to wind up, but let's let's not let's not talk about that because you know it's the big thing on everyone wants to talk yeah. about. So winding back, you've done a lot of work with Indigenous people. Is that the con- connection that you've made there? Is that through the Elders at the Port? No, or it's is through it started started out as being through the Tanandi Festival? Okay, so Tanandi Festival is a South Australian. Well, it's a national Central Australian festival of no, indigenous a, art. It's a national festival of indigenous art for indigenous and Torres Strait Islander art from South Australia all the way to Northern Territory, all over Australia. There'd right, be right. four hundred and fifty artists involved okay. in any one right uh, festival. Um, so initially, it was me um, taking photographs digitally of. Of what I wanted to for them, and they would. This is for the Art Gallery of South Australia, and they would keep those images. And in that, I'd always have the Hasselblad in the bottom of the bag, and I'd drag it out if I had the opportunity to take photographs, and I had full permission to do this. Um, and then, at one stage, I was offered an opportunity to go and run workshops up in Central Australia with art centres and Indigenous art centres, where I would teach them photographic processes without the use of cameras or... So sun prints and the like? Sun prints. um, Sometimes sort of halfway things where we'd go down to the tip shop and buy letterboxes and first aid kits and cocktail shakers and turn those into pinhole cameras and take those out on site. Um, And also the first, you know, initially was to... There was one particular group of artists who are well into landscapes, but they're less mobile because of age and and, um, being based in Alice Springs. And so we would get in a bus and go out on country, their country, and photograph things that they want to paint. So I'd have maybe half a dozen cameras with me and I'd just give them the cameras and those that are more mobile would wander off and you know half an hour later one of them someone would come back and I'd change the film and they'd go off and take some more photographs and that would be old my old Hasselblads and, and old 
um, folding cameras, which I had, and all sorts of things, and they'd just go and use them and take photographs. And or um, they would ask me to take photographs of places that they um, felt were special to them. Yeah, yeah. And some of that involved opening gates, which um, <coughs> most people wouldn't have access to. Yeah. And so I had I had privileged access to sites and I had privileged ac- access to the be- these beautiful people who were doing wonderful work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's such a strong art community in the Tanadi Festival, which yeah. is is just it's huge. Yeah, uh, it's massive. It's it's a it is something worth traveling for. Yeah. Um, and they have an art fair every year here as well. So you know, I, I often you know I take photographs of some of the artists who were there while they were there, um, again, using natural light. It might have been in the shop that's at the Tandania, using the you know the light off Greenfall Street, which is just out the window, yep. um, or um, upstairs in what's, what they call the green room where they could have their cups of tea, and, and I'd just go up there, and when someone came up, I would ask if I could uh, take their photograph. And that would, again, because of the the need for the, the, the artist's to be in their stalls um, explaining their work to potential buyers, that would again be something that had to be done fairly quickly Yes. Um, so that they weren't sort of being held up yeah. you know, and not back. You know, there might only be three artists from each arts centre down for the for the weekend yep. Yep. and you'd um, just try and do something very quickly for them and, so and, give them the, and give them the images. So that built the confidence of this quick work because, I mean, <coughs> they can go wrong. Oh, yeah. You know, it, uh, doing, doing, doing work for people... Uh, That's why I wouldn't do it as a profession. Right. <laughs> so Is that the reason why amateurs on the business? <laughs> because um, we're not guaranteeing them anything. I'm saying, if, I'm saying these might work and if they do, you get to use them for whatever you want to use them for. And if I want to use them, I've got to ask your permission. Yeah, yeah. So because they've been gener- generous enough to lend me the time and confidence to take their images. Yeah. And so I feel that um, they need to know that the images aren't just going to float out into the internet. Yeah. If I want to use them, I've got to ask them. Yeah. yeah. And get permissions, written permissions for for things that are going to be exhibited later. So I've got three... I've got two Indigenous images in the National Portrait Gallery, um, two sisters, um, and I've got their written permission to use those. And of uh, Linda Siddick Napujari and her sister Wincha Morgan Napujari from the Western Desert, so out out further in the Gibson Desert, and they're um, Pintipi people, and they first came off the lands. When their sisters, so they came off the lands when I think Linda was somewhere between eighteen and twenty-four years old, and her sister was somewhere between twenty-two and thirty years old. So their ages now are seventy-four to eighty-one, potentially. Yep. And eighty-five to ninety-four. Wow. And they're artists who now have worked throughout Australia as major art um, galleries. <coughs> I might have a cup of tea. Yeah, do. A cup of tea. Yeah. Um, so with the, uh, with the work with, um, you know, the Central Australian uh, working with artists, how did you find yourself in Aleppo 
in Syria. How did you find yourself? I mean, what the story that you're telling is all very local, yeah, and it's all very culturally significant to how to what being an Australian is about, mm. um, you know, and about the change in in the deindustrialization of Australia. And all this stuff is coming into it. You love working in spaces. I think you like a bit of detritus porn building. Buildings falling over. Urbex. Yeah. <laughs> urban yeah. exploration. Yeah. yeah, yeah, urban exploration. Uh, exploration, I think. So what, I mean, the fact is where you were in, in Syria, in Aleppo, you were right before. Yeah, were there, were there three weeks before the first shots were fired. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so tell us how, what landed you there and, <laughs> well, and why and how. Okay, and, so I don't know if you know Brian Dorr, who's used to sit beside John Clark on TV as a satirist. Yeah, and, and we've lost political, we've political satirist. Lost yeah. Clark, haven't yep. we? Yeah. Uh, yep. So, um, so Brian actually came out to open one of my exhibitions. How did you know Brian in the first place? Because he lives from used to live in Birkenhead, which was oh, right see. in the port. He came from the port, so, so he, was he a, came. He's a local. He came, yeah. So he came. He was coming over to do some, do a few shows and. Because so he does because he was coming as a comedian or comedian and satirist satirist so, yep. yeah yeah so he's coming across to um, open the the whole festival and so what was, was the festival it was the it was a port festival yes. and the exhibition was Rust Rust right so he opened okay. it um, okay well, so that's kind of cool so he um, stood there up in front of all the government dignitaries and said that. Um, you're basically selling the port down the river. <laughs> That's called set, good satirist, do. Yeah, and was that something you prompted him? Oh, he knew well he enough knows, he he's knows because he's a Yeah, he, he knew the whole scenario. So after that, um, he rang me one day and said, "We're thinking about going to Syria. We've been there before. And we're going to put a small group together. Would you be interested in coming?" And I said, "Well, yeah, well, but I'd love to, but when?" And um, he said, "Oh, about twelve months." We'll sort of get it together. And so two months after that, he said, well, we're actually going to be leaving in in, in uh, a month and a half's time. Would you still like to come? And so I managed to sell a few things and get some money together and Sandra and I and about 10 other people, and including a friend from the port. Um, we all travelled to Syria in February... 2011. What brought the trip forward from? from um, it was just was just there any sense that something no, was going down? Nothing at all. And um, there was obviously you know things were happening in Tunisia and things were happening in Egypt and and sort of you know, the whole the whole thing was changed. You know the Middle East was changing as far as people protesting against dictatorships. But the decision to go earlier. Um, at that point, none of that was happening. Yeah. So by the time we were flying to Syria, um, it was happening further south. Um, and even when we are in Syria, you know, um, it wasn't something that was talked about or, or discussed. And, you know, your taxi driver or whoever you're moving around with um, didn't ask you what, you what we thought of what's going on. Um, so we got there. I took... I managed to scrape together. I had about a hundred rolls of film, and on the Hasselblad, that's, that's yep. about a thousand pictures. No, <laughs> twelve hundred pictures. And I, and that was with my 
1954 Hasselblad Supreme Wide Angle, which is number 72 of the Hasselblad production line total. Yep, yep. And I took that with me, and I, that's the camera I used all the way through Syria. Um, but I, so I managed to, I had about $100 of film, and I contacted Kodak to see if they'd be interested in sponsoring me to the point of maybe getting some whole, getting some film wholesale. And I hadn't heard back, and I hadn't heard back, and I contacted them again and hadn't heard back. And then at, just before Christmas, about four days before Christmas, I rang the guy who I'd been dealing with, and he said... Peter Coughlin, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. And he yeah. said, look, I don't... It's not a problem. Um, I'll sort you out. And so um, he sent me 80 rolls of film and a bill for zero. Um, so wow. basically full sponsorship for 80 rolls of film on top wow. of the 100 I had. So I took 180 rolls of film to Syria with me. And the first encounter with Syrian security was at the airport on the way into Damascus. And I had my, this is all in my hand luggage, my, um, my film. And got through security, um, slightly uncomfortable because it's a new place and it's, you know, basically people with machine guns hanging around. And was just walking out into the reception area where, you know, people um, meet you after getting off the plane. This big burly bloke came, was standing there, and he was just taking everyone's bags and throwing them into an ex-Aeroflot, um, full-on X-ray machine for oh, no. full-on luggage. So you all could the see luggage. The, you could see the so film. I saw I saw the thought of a film basically being totally destroyed, and and so that's 180 rolls of film going down the drain because it was it was a heavy-duty X-ray. It wasn't it wasn't the hand. You could see it cranked all the way yeah, to eleven. Yeah. <laughs> So I got my bags and and we went into Damascus City and we found our um, hotel and um, and I'd been in contact with a guy in Syria, a photographer in Syria before then. Um, he was a and he was photographing for the Guardian, the Washington Post, and all sorts of other. Things. Were you the only person there there for the photography, or was yeah, it? Was it, yeah, I think right. for yeah. yeah. The well, there I was for there, culture. but but I was there for travel photography. As yeah. in, as in, I wasn't there to take photographs to use later. I was yeah, there to yeah. enjoy myself taking photographs. Yes, because what you like to do. Yeah. So I contacted this guy the following morning, and I said, you know, is there any chance of um, getting film developed here in in Damascus? With the thought of that X-ray machine. Yeah. <laughs> so I went and took four rolls of film um, from six o'clock in the morning to, you know. 8.30 or whatever, wandering around the centre of Damascus uh, by myself with a with an old Hasselblad. Felt totally comfortable. Um, and then walked to the souk and met up with him and then we walked maybe four or five k's to another part of town where there was a, where there was a, um, a processing um, business. And we then settled into a pub not a pub, but a, a place you could have alcohol, so it's not a pub as such, but it was a mm-hmm. it was an interesting place to get drunk and to talk stories. And then went back to the processing place, got my photographs, opened them up, and they're all good. So, so that was so it survived the X-ray machine. Yeah, well, the black and whites definitely did. Um, color had um, a slight change of of hue. Um, and 
slide film was slightly slightly different to what I expected, but yeah, but good enough that I basically had the black and white I could do anything with the yeah. color I would. So that gave use. you the confidence to yeah. yeah. So I just shoot. kept on kept on shooting. So I took, <coughs> I suppose I took uh, 140 rolls. I shot 140 rolls, gave 40 away to Syrian photographers who I met up with at different stages um, and brought them back here and developed the black and white at home and and I'm just now thinking about turning that into a book. Those really? Images. Yeah. So, so, um, so once you guys, when you left uh, Syria, did you, was there any sense that things were revving up? A little bit. Um you know, I, I had the, I had my, sh- I was tapped on the shoulder a number of times with with someone with a machine gun asking me what I was up to. Yeah. Um, and you know that because I'd I'd be out at dawn taking photographs of things, mm. which turned out to be you know mil- military establishments for Russian navy and tattoos. <laughs> Been photographed <laughs> by New Zealand spy. Yeah. So you know, I'd ask be asked to turn around and face the other way to take photographs. Um, and when we got down to Dara, which is on the Syrian-Jordan border, to travel across, um, we had to spend, I think, eight hours there because of power failure, so they couldn't do any checking. And we got through, so we went into Dara itself, the town, and did a few things, and then um, you know, waited at the border with all the, all the other people with their you know, veggies piled up on the back of trucks and all sorts of things just to get across into Jordan to sell them. And Dara turned out to be the first place where the first shots were fired in the Syrian civil war. Wow. And that was that happened two weeks later. Wow. In the streets because the fathers and mothers of kids who had put some graffiti on the wall, 14-year-olds who had put some graffiti, which was um, anti the president, um, were put in jail and beaten up. And so when the families and the community got together to protest this. They were walking down the street and being picked off by snipers. Right. In right. the street. So that was that the first, started it. That started the war. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, when you returned, how long was it after? Because you showed we, that work was shown here at yeah. a festival. Yeah, uh, at a Shimmer Festival. At a Shimmer Festival. So that's the same festival that yeah. this, this interview is on the back of. Yeah. Um, and the festival, what was that? What year was it? 2012? Uh it would have been 2012 because yeah. 2011 is when we were there. Yeah, so, yeah. and you had a you had a really large space at a yep. at a um, at a winery, and you use really large images to great effect. And Brian had some work. Yeah, Brian, well. Sandra, and I. We Brian, Sandra, and you. Had, yeah, and it was called Syria Lost. Yeah, yeah. and so the, at that stage, it was a year later. You knew what had happened in Aleppo. It was still, yep. I mean, it's not over. Yeah. No, but you know, just we travelled all around the place. We travelled from Damascus out to the you know, the lost cities through um, uh, Tartus, through um, out, out to Palmyra, you know, sort of, which is 100 kilometres from Iraq, uh, from Baghdad, if you like. So just mm-hmm. there was a Baghdad, there was a Baghdad cafe in the middle of the desert, which we stopped at. And um, it was, and we got put up by Bedouin families on the banks of the Euphrates River where the other side of the bank was the Mesopotamia mm. and that was a, at a big archaeological dig. We were we, you know, put up for a couple of nights there with the family. Um, That's incredible. And so how like, 
how have you felt about things <coughs> after, you know, having seen all of that and having just left there? That must have really thrown you for, for a six. It did. And so I wanted to get imagery out. I had no plans to do get imagery out when I take taken the images. I just wanted to see what I could you know, get from going to a place which was generally had been accessible but wasn't as accessible when we got there. And I just, you know, the, the, what I was surprised about was the absolute generosity of the people and the absolute you know, beautiful nature of the people. And it was just there, not just there, but it was their, their government, um, which turned out to be the problem for the people. Yeah, and, which is... Which is not an uncommon story, yeah. seeing that everywhere. But they were lovely, lovely. Totally, you know, you'd be wandering along and someone would offer you um, something to eat. We were, I was in Aleppo up in, up in the, the top of the Citadel, and which is a, like a big amphitheatre. And it was from, you know, I'm not sure, I think it was cr- earlier than the Crusades. Um, and these kids came running down the steps of one side of the amphitheatre and up the, side of, up the other side of the amphitheatre to us and gave us lunch. Wow. And you know, they just they just wanted to feed us because we weren't, we weren't local and they thought we might be hungry. Yeah, you weren't local and you weren't trashing <laughs> yeah, the place. Yeah, you, yeah. You're, you're, you're t- taking it all in. Yeah, so it just had wonderful opportunities to be with people, to have the f- most fantastic food, um, to be in a place which had 9,000 years of continuous... Occupation, civilization, through many different cultures, so the Byzantine, through the you know all sorts of all sorts of cultures that had occupied the the um, the Silk Route and the and the uh, spice routes and so forth that uh, we were able to access. What a good opportunity! So um, has after that and that Shimmer Festival, it was quite a, a notable show. You were just saying you were thinking that. Looking back on that now, you think it needs to be made into a book or something, something more. Um, a friend uh, is trying to convince me to do it, um, and they basically see um, see the, the the value in the work. And I've always thought it might be uh, interesting to do a book, and so uh, I can get the work together. He's comfortable doing the writing and I can do a little bit of writing myself um, and just see how it floats and maybe send it off to something. I've got a couple of friends who who do do quite, who put out photography books all the time but they're in a different league um, and they sort of semi-encourage me to think about it as well. Yeah, I, I don't think anything bad could come from the exercise of, of putting something together to the extent that you can show it uh, to these people and see whether yep. see there's a some sort of an, an interest in taking it up to that next yep. level. So being an industrial designer I've got a little bit of a graphic background I can I can do something I'll, but I'd you know get someone to finesse it yeah. to, at the end of it but um, yeah. well, I can potentially put something together. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's pretty exciting. What's the like what are you thinking about uh, you know, we've we've been in this weird, strange lockdown, and South Australia is just starting to get things going. Our Shimmer Festival has been going. You've had a pretty successful exhibition at Shimmer, and you were uh, one of the featured, preeminent artists of the of the show. And you've got 
Uh, how many pieces are up on the wall at the moment? 16. Right, the 16 up. That's a huge show, like physically. Well, the smallest image there is 1.2 metres square. Yeah, so it's physically huge. What What are you thinking about as your next next step? I mean, it's all everyone is struggling what's happening next. Yeah. I know I know you're thinking that you'd love to go home and, and see some family, but travelling New Zealand isn't quite a, a, an easy thing to do right now. Well, uh, you could nearly... I reckon I could get back to New Zealand, but I wouldn't be able to get back to Australia. Yeah, Because yeah. anyone who's... I'm a full-time resident of Australia, so... Yeah. Um, but anyone who's a, who's a full citizen of Australia can't get in, so why would they let a, a resident who's living in New Zealand come back? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I suspect I won't be going to New Zealand until there's a vaccine or... There's no requirement for um, quarantining both ends. Yep. Um, because if I go there now, potentially I'd pay. Th- it'll be two weeks on the way in, two weeks on the way back. Yeah, it's three thousand dollars on the way in, three thousand dollars on the way back, just for quarantine. Yeah, yeah. That's and that and that that would mean I'd at least have to take six weeks holiday. Yeah, um, which would give me two weeks holiday in that space. Yeah, so it's not going to not going to happen no. for a while. So, so, so travel's not going to be a thing in the short term. Photographically, do you have your sights on anything? Um, internal travel. Um, if I can, you know, I've never travelled by myself as an you know as, as a solo in a tent person. Um, Sandra's always travelled with me, but Sandra passed away a couple of years ago. Um, so it's difficult to see, it's difficult for me to sort of imagine how it would be tent traveling or, um, cabin traveling or whatever, just on my own. Yeah. I'll do it one day. It's just, it's just got to work it out. Yeah. 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 Um, that's a pretty huge change in your life to lose your partner. Mm. Um, I, I can't imagine like how the ground has to be reworked and you're looking at what you know what happens next, but you've really dug in. You've done some amazing work in these last couple of years, right. um, and has that been a big stabilizing influence for you? It has. Um, and I want to. Basically, she wouldn't have wanted me to sit around a mope. Who who does yeah. want anyone to sit around a mope? Um, and you know, I, it's it's a it's a beautiful distraction. Photography is a really beautiful story, especially yeah. when you're putting people in front of you. Yeah, your and you're meeting people. So you know, I spent two weeks with Pussy Riot, which I don't think many <laughs> people can say they've done before. No, I mean, I don't, I don't know anyone who's had a, had the opportunity to photograph them. And you know, whether it's them or you know, all sorts of really interesting people along the way. Some people you only meet for minutes. Other people, you know, within festivals, you might be there for their whole you know, one week or two week tenure in the in the in the festival and document them front stage, backstage, on stage. I was taking photographs on stage with Pussy Riot, which if you can imagine a fully charged up punk band with water going all over the place and smoke going all over the place and sort of massive um, movement of arms and legs and 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 the volume was just fantastic. Um and and then having a camera in the middle of that was just fantastic. It's yeah, just yeah. it's just a joy. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, that that's you know, incredible energy, and that would that would be incredibly sustaining. I I was um, 
like that, we we live in the festival state. A lot comes here, and we get a lot of opportunities mm. to to do that. I'm I'm curious about how you put it all together. As far now, I, I I'm I got a, a feeling, and everyone I speak to about this, there's very few people that find that that sort of work can sustain them financially and keep them. So so for you, you kind of work to allow you to do this work. Yeah, I I work. Funny enough, at, at your place. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was, um, but Paul offered me a, a job developing film and looking after the dark rooms, and I started out sort of in a modest way, and now I'm looking after the dark rooms. So I'm doing, which is great, black and white C41 and E6 I development. Th- I mean, it's it's good. Like th- yeah. you're doing a great job, and the people here, you fit it in really, really well. But it's you know that question of because I know a lot of people listening are like. I'd love to be able to do that work. How do you how do you how do you get that work and 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 the thinking that it becomes a, a career and I suppose eventually your work will pay for itself. Yeah. Well, your your photography will pay for itself. I'm contemplating doing commissions for photography as in portrait photography. I'll never do a wedding. Well, I have done one, but that was for <laughs> a good friend and it was with my big old film camera and it was sort of second photographer anyway. It was just sort of a... Those wedding photographers, like, they're nah, brilliant, aren't they? I don't we'll know listen, how they do it. We'll listen, yeah, so I, 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 I don't want to be sort of given a brief. I'd like to set my own right, brief. Right, right. Um, That's a pretty so, fancy place to be in. <laughs> well, you know, if someone wants um, photographs of themselves, um, it's a collaboration yeah, and it's not it's not someone saying, "Okay, I'm going to bring a pink dress, and I want four photographs of that pink dress with with me in it, and such and such." I'll say, "Bugger off!" You know, we've got we've got other things to do. Um, so if I can just take p- photographs of people as natural as they can be, um, then that'll be fine. And I and I I have spent you know two hours with people taking photographs. I spent five hours with one person. Now that's a record um, for you for over the normally a three minute portrait. Yeah, well, this is a girl who'd come out from, uh, I think she was from Holland, and she'd she'd approached one of the photo stores in the city about wanting some photographs which were analog, and she'd been a model, and she'd been going around Australia being a model, and it was only on the day that I was starting that. Well, in fact, it was only the when we sort of got to the place that I'd found, which was a dodgy old place within the port with you know lots of heaps of character. That I found out that she was a nude model and she wanted, you know, interesting photographs of her. So it was five hours later we finished. Right. And she didn't charge me what she'd normally charge me to take photographs, and I didn't charge her what I'd take charge a person to. Yeah. So take it's that them. collaboration you're talking about. And she was charging. She was earning eight thousand, eighteen thousand euro a month in Australia as a model. Far out. And she gave me five hours of her time. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd really sort of got into doing nude photography and that was uh, you know, sort of fine out nude and semi-nude and you know, sort of and you know doesn't bother me because I've done um, plenty of um, still li- um, sorry um, yeah life drawing. drawings and so forth over the yeah. years as a designer and and as part of my industrial design course we used to have to um, have, there was a model there was a, a tutor and it was always a model who would have to disrobe at some point during the during the um the class to show how her muscles moved so that our ergonomics oh yeah were so ergonomics and anthropometrics were studied with a human body yep, yep so that was all part of it that's fabulous so your um the, the other 
portrait that you've taken that's taken a long time is a portrait of Jill Hicks. Yeah. Uh, which is also is that that's in the National Portrait Gallery. Isn't it is. It? Yeah. So it's been acquired by them. Yeah, they bought it off the wall from my exhibition grit. Yeah, and I took it for my exhibition grit. Uh, the exhibition, so the grit being one of the one of the those community exhibitions that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jill has lost her legs. Jill lost her legs in the London Underground bombing, and she was the last person found in the last carriage in that bombing, and they put a wrist strap on her which said one unknown possibly female um, and she was the person who was standing right beside the bomber so her the bag was on the ground her legs were ripped off and the majority of the people in the carriage died wow and so she was taken to hospital in her under unidentifiable form and um and the policeman who found her the constable who, who found her held her hand for nine hours Far out. from when she was found to when she came out of operation. Wow. Um, they're best friends. Wow. Now. What a wonderful story. Mm. And that the portrait you took of her, um, you're looking for a location that would, you know, suit the idea of grit. This is someone who's yeah. just got to drag themselves back from a space where most people wouldn't have survived. Yeah. And so you shot her in a in a basement, was in it? In the basement of a wool store in Port Adelaide, which no one gets access to unless they know people. And yeah, I, yeah. I know people in Port Adelaide. So. Yeah. So it was a, a portrait with some with just a little bit of natural light falling in, and, and she's very tiny, contemplative t- in it. Tiny amount of natural light. So basically, little arched windows at, at shoulder level, yeah. which sort of went out into laneways, not even streets. So sort of bricked up laneways. So the light was all bounced in, and because I was using. Um, uh, 1950s uh, speed graphic with an 1860s French lens, which didn't have aperture or shutter or anything. Um, I was just taking up to eight second exposures of her, so there were between four and eight second exposures of her on 100 ISO film. So very low light. If you walked in there um, straight off the street, you couldn't see where you were going comfortably you yeah. could see the windows um but after a while you get used to the light so what how was it that jill trusted you to to shoot that did you know i didn't i didn't know jill before then okay um but a friend did and so i asked a friend if she could ask jill yeah. to be my subject um and i wasn't sure exactly you know what um i wanted to do so we met at a cafe and had a cup of coffee um, she'd arrived a bit late because the stumps on her l- legs, the bones, um, had started to mesh with the nerve endings in those stumps and she was in great pain um, that morning um, and continues to be in pain because of that process. Um, and so I asked her if she wanted to take doing a bit of a gritty upstairs sort of um, space with... Um, French doors and peeling wallpaper and you know, a beautiful textured floor um, or in a place where there's lots of dead rats and you know, desiccated animals, you know, birds, rats, whatever, on the floor and dust everywhere and I think it had about a half inch of dust all through it as you walked around it would pop around your feet. <laughs> um, and she chose, the, she chose the, the more gritty environment yep. and... Um, I just 
found the place which had a little bit of a natural light coming in and um, used that and a chair I'd brought along to take her photographs. And I took about 20 photographs of her. So you really broke your rules of three photographs well, and, and two partially, minutes. Partially because you know, if you're asking someone to sit still for four seconds, your, your, yeah. your win rate is not going to be big. Right, so right, right. I figured that you know, if I get one photograph out of this, I'd be lucky. Which you got. And I got. Okay, and it's now acquired by the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah, which I'm kind of chuffed because that's the only gallery yeah. that represents me in the country. <laughs> <laughs> with three, with three, with three photographs in there. Yeah. So it's fabulous. Touch. I don't, I don't have anyone selling my images. You're doing so. well for an amateur. Yeah, well, amateur. You know what amateur means? It's, 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 you know, the Latin derivative of amare, which is for the love of, yeah. and that's what you know where it comes from. Yeah, and that's how. I, I don't mind keep calling myself an amateur. Um, I don't, up until now I haven't made any, I, I wouldn't call myself making a living from photography, so I can quite comfortably call myself an amateur still. That being said, you've sold quite a lot of work over the years. I have. And, you know, and this last show is incredible. Yeah, well, up until before Sandra died, I used to do about seven or eight exhibitions a year. Yeah. This year I've done four. In one stage I was in, no, I was in, I've done five. And at one stage, I was in four at once. Wow! Um, so <laughs> juggling act, and two of those were solos. Yeah. So, wow. Um, but you do sell, which is part of it, yeah. which means the work is out there. Yeah. Which is nice. I mean, not as a financial thing, but as uh, people want my work. And pictures of people are really challenging to sell, other than the person who's in it. I didn't think I'd sell any um, of the portraits to the general public. Yeah. Um, yeah it's a strange thing to have someone yeah. else's face on your yeah. wall, isn't it? So, unless it's a famous face and people want that famous face on their wall. Of course. And so there's been interest. I said at one stage there were up to six potential sales. And um, so really what I was aiming for was the potential of getting some more stuff in the National Portrait Gallery, which, you know, is sort of selfish, but. You know, a nice little thing to look at. That's great. Um, and maybe get another exhibition, maybe get in another gallery representing me somewhere um, through looking at the work. It's and a part, and of the work is has the potential of travelling because yeah. of the way of the way I've displayed it and the way I've printed it. It is mobile. Yeah, yeah. That's really good thinking. Very strategic. And you know, it, a lot of this stuff is a, <coughs> is a ladder. Yeah. You know, you are. What you need to do to get the next step is you need to get your work out. It needs to be seen and you need yep. to get the invitations and the acquisitions and, and all that sort of stuff and you're, you're well and truly on your way. Can you say one more time for me the Latin def definition of amateur? Amare is for the love of. I think we're going to end it at that. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. Well, there goes. That's your Tony. That's your Tony for important listeners. Oh, she's falling off a chair. Watch it, everyone. She's doing some acrobatic. <laughs> and we're actually at the standing desk, so the chair's quite tall and the it'll be a big fall. <clears throat> a big fall. So, yeah, Tony, and we're very blessed to have Tony. He's uh, our film processor. Yeah, he, he's actually taken over from uh, John Clark, who retired a couple yes, of years ago. Yes, and his job has become substantially larger in the last two weeks because Michael's in Melbourne have stopped processing film. Yeah, which is well, yeah, which, which is, is very sad. Pretty sad for Melbourne. It is and sad um, for, for Melbourne, and I mean, we are grateful to have the work, but it's not helpful for those who want to send the work. No, and not, not only have to put up with getting it here, mm. they've got to put up with the delays 
and getting it back. Of quarantine and stuff. Oh yeah, but quarantine. I'm thinking more about the freight side of things. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and and since then we've we've actually got work from Perth Labs, um, Brisbane, New South Wales, yeah. Tasmania, Victoria. Uh, so Tony's <laughs> has gone from, uh, you know, two th- two and a half days a week. To it's going to be very busy three days whilst we sort out this process. Yeah, I think we're going to have to process more than we are. In yeah, the days that we're doing. But it's great having Tony because he's got a, a deep understanding of film and handling it in the dark, and he's got such a um, he he he's got some method and care and repeatability in you know in his skill set, and mm. that sort of uh, that care and cautiousness is exactly what you need for film processing. It's very easy to make a mistake when you've got no eyesight because you're in the dark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's awesome having him. So, yeah, that's that's it. I hope everyone enjoyed the, the Tony talk. The Tony talk. Yeah. Hey, now I hear that you are going to do something for us right now. You're going to do um, a moment of colour. Is that right, Kate? Could that be I'm you? I'm doing the moment of colour, so you may start yawning. I don't do that. I'm going to tip my uh, head and I'm going to nod and go, oh, oh, interesting. So after being with me for 25 years, you're finally going to be an active listener. I'm lear- I've learned how to Fucking years listener. of training you to be an active really listener. interesting. Yeah. You're full of shit. Please again. tell me more. <laughs> you're such an So Kate, lead us in the moment of Okay, I'm color. talking about the moment of colour. I'm doing moment of colour because I have been doing – the ephemera range, ephemera. Hey, how do you pronounce it? Ephemera. ephemera. Ephemera means a collection of, not even a collection. Ephemera is, is stuff. Stuff that is printed stuff that you don't really isn't like super duper amazing artworks. Important. It's like uh, business cards and invoices and calendars and receipts, receipts and all that sort of letterhead. St- yeah, and I was just obsessed with it when I was a kid. I was just. I loved, you know, all the secretaries' paperwork with all their little boxes that they could tick and the and the the you know press hard three copies and I just carbon paper oh carbon paper and that tissue like paper that's for receipts and the you know the papers that would tick down the numbers automatically you know those papers that each one had a different number I just loved that stuff when I was a child and I still. Absolutely love it. And that's why one of the reasons I really wanted to call this new range, range the ephemera range, um, and also because it's actually a completely appropriate name because that's exactly what it is. Sort of not super-duper keep-it-forever stuff. It is, you know, um, things you keep for a short period of time. Cards. But as part, yes. Calendars. Cards and calendars. But a part of that is I've been working with metal – and I've been working. It's like heavy metal. Oh, you're such a fucking dad. That's you, Ollie Sansom. And and so that so other than the absolute horror show that is working with the Adelaide metal market, of which there are. What's wrong with the metal market? I, you know, it's one of these moments of like provincialism that you get in Adelaide where. You go, hey, give me a quote. And they're like, yeah, sure. Three weeks later, after asking 32 times, you might get a quote. And there's a lot of like, oh, yeah, thanks for sending the quote request in. It's a Friday. I'll get back to you on Monday. It's like, 
So we don't work on Fridays? We just work on Mondays. Is that is that the deal? Like it, it is just – it is – This is a moment of whinging, not a yes, moment of colour. shut up. It's a moment of whinging about Adelaide. These are the moments where I go, why am I in Adelaide? Why am I not in Sydney or Melbourne? You know the name? Uh, Adelaide. Adelaide City. Yes. Because there was some drongo who did a logo once for the Adelaide City Council. Yeah, with a big capital A uh, with a little they, delayed. Yeah, that's right. They did something horrendous to the A and so it looked like a delayed City Council. Anyway, <laughs> so I've been dealing with the metal industry and <laughs> there is – because in a couple of our products there's the calendars that have these little stands and so there's brass and there's steel. steel. And – what I wanted was brass that was sort of aged looking. And so initially I was like, it's going to be raw brass. It's going to be beautiful. And it's going to be this and that. And so I gave, I remember I gave Nikki, our, our bookbinder, book I gave her one of the unfinished brass stands to play around with because we're looking at a, at a gift packaging option, which no, we haven't finalised yet because brass is heavy as shit and really you know, hard Gift to packaging? Yeah, you saw it. Like putting oh yeah, yeah. So the bo- the calendar, and the stand of the calendar would come in a beautiful box with box. little yeah. inlay. We're still like a little coffin. Around. Yeah, we're still fighting around with it. It'll happen. It's just you know this week. Anyway, and I gave it to her, and then she came back with it after a couple of hours to show me the box she made, and the calendar looked like someone had eaten a burger and then basically rubbed themselves all over the calendar <laughs> because. The stand, that is, because brass is incredibly reactive. So any acid, any oil, anything, any air <laughs> that touches the shit, <laughs> it just starts to freak out. And over time, it builds up this beautiful patina. And patina is a sort of a, a showing of wear. Which um, is what we like to do. I'm obsessed with patina. Yeah. If I was to ever get a tattoo, it would probably be the word patina. But I'll never get a tattoo because I cannot commit. Um, and and so over time it builds up this beautiful patina and it builds up this sort of lovely brownie sort of wood colour and it's just gorgeous. But intermediately, before it's over time and looking gorgeous, it just looks like someone's eaten a bloody burger and slimed themselves all over it. So I had to get a solution for that. So and and I wanted to etch it because when it comes from the metal guys. <laughs> Hang on, hang on. Are we talking about the brass or the steel? Both. I'm talking about both. But just right now I'm talking about the brass. So when it comes from the metal guys, it is completely like like copper art, shiny, shiny, really yellow. It's kind of terrible. Golden. Yeah, it's terrible. And I looks, am a golden god. You need to shut up. This is what this is your version of not listening, is interrupting every 30 seconds. Yeah, he's fucking nodding for those of you who can't see his stupid head, fat head. So <laughs> my head's not fat. Really, my tummy's fat. So my head. <laughs> when you when you um, when you get it back, you have to do this process called linishing, which nobody told me about. For the first, that's like finishing with an L. The first four hundred dollars I blew on bloody brass with this mob of wankers who were like, "Here's your blast brass product." Anyway, you have to linish it, and it's. Ugh. Not f- for some reason the fuckwits won't call it finishing. They want to call it linishing. So linishing I is basically taking the raw metal <laughs> and <laughs> finishing it with the texture and other applications of paint or varnish or wax or whatever to make it chill out. So 
I've figured out how to linish it and I've which I will be doing myself. There are chemicals stupidly. all over the place. There are chemicals all over the place. I can't work out what they are. Are they like acids? And yeah, stuff? so they're acids and the acids do weird things to the metals. Hope you're not tipping down the drain. No, I'm not tipping it down the fucking drain. It's all reusable. It goes straight back in the jar. Wow. Yeah. So I've played with all these different chemicals that all do something slightly different to... It's like we're in a lab. ...the metal. It's like it's <laughs> totally like we're in a lab. Good branding. And it's been really interesting to see, like, one chemical I had took the brass and basically freaked it out completely. It went sort of brown and gold and and sort of had green bits and it just went like – and anything that went near it after, even after I'd washed it, it would take on the pattern and, and it would react again to – like I rested a cloth on it and it reacted again to that pattern. And it still react right now. It's out there fucking dancing around in colours. I don't know what the hell that thing did, but it was crazy and it still hasn't recovered. And then the one I settled on just puts this lovely fine etch and it just makes it sort of matte and gold and it's beautiful. But in order to keep that, I have to then spray it with a varnish so that it doesn't continue to degrade and change. Oh, this has got to com- turn into a complicated oh, product. Oh, Christ. Look, what I'm saying is we're not making a profit on this range. Oh, well, that's not how we work. We that's can't do that. That's not how we work. We don't make Well, it make is how profit. we work. but We're a we not-for-profit organisation. We can't go forward okay. like that. Well, look, we'll see how I – when I get into, like, production mode, because I am the one that will be making them all. For the short term until we train someone For the short term up. until Which I Which is how the place works. You do the prototyping. Then yeah, I know. And then everybody goes, okay, we need four more of those things that you have Decided to make. She's stupidly. too busy upstairs doing like her hair. Like fucking silk. Oh shit! I haven't made the silk. I need to make silk. We've run out of neutral and black. Anyway, I have to dye silk tonight. So, um, so it's really fascinating to watch how the different mixtures of chemicals. And so then I had to go down this whole universe of then blackening the steel, because Ollie Sansom, who is a son of a bitch, and no one loves him. Just kidding. But everyone loves him. Everybody loves him. That's why we all get to joke about how much we hate him because we all love him because he's stonkingly talented and very sweet and has the cutest pigs alive. So he said, I want black steel. When I showed him the brass, he was like, give me black and steel or give me death. And I was like, fuck, why am I not doing that already? So then I went and got the steel and I and I thought, okay, well. So this is the same thing made in steel that you had Same in, stand in but brass. made in, black, in, in steel and then I blacken it. The steel. Because when the steel comes, it just looks like a kitchen bench top. Like, it's not stainless steel, so it's not as sort of silvery as stainless steel is because it's a blue steel. It's just sort of a bit bluer. Um, but, again, it reacts if it gets anything acidic on it. It's it, very delicate It's for very delicate, all the rest of it. It still needs to be have its edges taken off a bit and then dipped in something to fix it. So I went down this track of, like, how do you make steel black? Turns out there's this stuff called bluing solution. This is why we visited a gun shop the other day. This is why we visited a gun shop, which was very exciting and slightly scary. Yeah. But they were very nice and I think somewhat excited to have a girl in the shop. And so I bought this bluing solution. She's a hot girl. Oh, shut up. Bought this bluing solution, which was really freaky because the second you wipe it onto the steel, it makes it go this bizarre kind of, brownie black immediately but then it kind of keeps building up and it keeps changing and it's really hard to manage and and then I and so then I, I like 
I managed to make it bl- like blackish and then I had to stop it from continuing to react and like coming off on your hands and stuff. So then the recommendation is you coat it in vegetable oil. Well, I coated it in vegetable oil and it stank. Like it stank like a Chinese grocer. It was fucking horrendous. Hang on. That's no, not great. No, it was bad. No, it's not racist. It was bad. So and so, What about a fish and chip shop? Yeah, whatever. So it was just horrendous. So then we had to, um, and you should have heard the girls just like, wow, that's disgusting. They were all freaked out. So I then had to go online and there are these places online where you can buy 40,000 different potions and lotions and they all do something different to steal or brass, or copper, or anything. And they age it in varying different ways. So you can get like copper aging solutions that make it go green. You get steel solutions that make it go all sorts of colors. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to get the bluing solution and use that. Turns out that's not what you want. You want this black oxidizing solution. And I used it just yesterday and it worked Fucking treat. It's amazing. But you put the steel in there, and I'm actually going to do a video of it and put it on the Instagram because it's really cool. Because you put the steel in there and it sort of flashes all these different colors. Like it immediately goes black, and you're like, sweet. And then it goes really pale, and then it goes black, and then it goes pale again, and then it goes black again. It's completely bizarre. And then you, and if you touch it, bits of the black will sort of come off, but then when you wash it, they don't come off. It's, also, it's actually rusting it in a way. It's kind, Yeah, it's kind of rusting it. And then it started to go a bit red and I was like, fuck, it better not rust it because I don't want the rust look. And so then I pulled it out of the wash and I washed it, sh- like literally shampoo wash. Um, and, and then to age, to seal it off, I use this beautiful um, special, uh, like it's like a wax and it smells beautiful and you coat it all with that and it goes dark again, like darker again, and then that just mats off and it's like it disappears. I don't know where the fuck it goes. It soaked in, soaks into the soaks into the metal. It's bizarre. <laughs> the whole thing is just like so interesting and weird and it's why I fucking love my job. Yeah. I get to do this stuff. And then that finish, because then what happened with the bluing solution is I sent Ollie a whole bunch of photos because the bluing solution on the steel started to freak out and went all yellow and freaky looking and so it looked like aged brass, which is really weird. So now the solution I've got for the metal is like schmicko and it looks so good. And it was very exciting. Oh, that's awesome. That's a really cool moment of colour. There's so many different colours. And that, that doesn't even go into all the things you can do with aluminium and anodizing, and you just change it like a rainbow of fucking colours by just flashing some shit at it. It's just, I don't know. I don't do science. I don't do chemistry. I don't do any of that. I mean, I love science, but I don't like participate in it short of a bit of bicarbonate soda. And the occasional Panadol. Oh, well. I'm all over that shit for a separate reason. But, yeah, so it was just – I found it really interesting to look at the colour of metal, something that will stay in that state for a period of time and what is that time and that – because, you know, what we do at the lab is generally we want to make a thing and it be that thing forever and ever and ever. And something like brass, something like wood, something like marble – None of those things do that. They all age and they I change over I think time. We think we want our things to be the same forever, but 
They don't. They do change. And, yeah, but we do and a lot, a lot of people. Of, we, but the aim of it is to do that. Of like course, the aim of course, is to keep it course. forever and ever. But there's been I've heard some pretty strong arguments from collectors and curators alike in museums and art galleries is to celebrate the the change in the age and mm. and especially you see a lot of uh, regular well, photographic product prints from the seventies and eighties yeah. that have have faded and they've got this sort of a charm. To, and now a lot of people are trying to chase those looks in Instagram filters. Oh, I mean, there's a market out there for people who can sell pieces of paper, like stacks of blank paper that have been kept up in a, in a shed or in an attic somewhere and they've just slowly aged and the edges have got brown and it's slowly seeped in just a tiny bit into the centre. Because you can't center. make that. Because you cannot make that, and then people are taking those those beautiful pieces of paper and using hand calligraphy and making the most expensive fucking wedding invitations you've ever seen, and they are breathtaking. That's interesting. So that's the kind of stuff that, for some reason, just turns me wild. Like that is the stuff. If you ever want to make me happy, get me old shit. <laughs> like I'm just, I want the latest iPhone and the oldest piece of paper on earth. <laughs> because I think there's something magical because it's a thing that you can never get again. It's the rarest of rare. It doesn't exist anymore yeah. after that. And I just think that there's nothing more beautiful than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, that's your moment of colour. That was very good. And you know what? The other thing we should wrap it up with a guess is Tony helped you out. With the with the finishing and the sealing of the surface of the metal, yes, he which is was very the one cool because he, the he does know his stuff. He does know his stuff, but I'm of course, I tend to be a little bit need to try and work it out myself. Of course, and and also his he was very much in his industrial design age. He would sort of ship that stuff off to other people. So is it? And look, we might end up doing that uh, once once we've proven it as a product if it if it turns into a big thing. Well, yeah, fuck, it better not turn into a really big thing because otherwise we're going to be in big trouble. Um, But I just would like people to buy the amount we've ordered from the metal people so I'm not giving everyone a... As I was saying to someone on the Facebook group, people better order these fucking Christmas cards because otherwise every one of our family members is getting a good 150 (laughs) envelopes now that I've bought thousands of fucking envelopes. So the short answer is if you're listening to this and you haven't ordered Christmas cards through us, you suck and you need to go and do that now and you need to tell all your friends to order your Christmas cards through us and your calendars and your albums while you're at it. And if you're a vision art client. friends, they can't. They're, they're, fuck not, you wedding, and they're not photographers, they huh? can't. They've, they can't send their friends. It's not on Rose yet. Shut up. No, yeah, but Rose. you still got to be a professional. These are whole Yeah, yeah, products. yeah. But now there's pros listening. Let's hope. And the other bit of news we're having is that you're going to do the editing from now on because I'm a lazy bitch that's got too much going on. Apparently. And you are a finisher. I am. And I am not. You're the linisher and I'm the finisher. No. <laughs> I'm the I'm the big ideas girl. Not good with detail. All right, my friends. Love you. Love you all. Yay, See no more next. Trump. <laughs> Yay, no Cheeto more Trump. fucker is out. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Welcome, Joe Biden, to the world of sanity. Thanks, Aussies. Bye. Bye.